series in Matthew for the next couple of weeks. I'll be preaching, and the passage that we are studying today is in chapter 2, which is all about the entrance of God's Son into the world. I believe that God has given us this chapter in the Bible so that we can see His hand in what happened. And the verses that we are reading today have to do with the reaction of people to the birth of Jesus, along with the prophecies in Scripture that actually predicted the responses of some of these people. So I want to begin with verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 15. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go! And search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. And stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Christmas is that time of year when we celebrate the entrance of God's Son into the world. Typically, uh, it is a wonderful and a very warm season of the year. Uh, It's not unusual to see a nativity scene in a Christian church, uh, even a shopping center, or um, bright decorations with lights and angels and stars and often attempts to create winter scenes with snow, even down here. When I was in the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, the Cove is the Billy Graham uh, Conference Training Center, beautiful facility in the middle of the mountains. They've got a huge uh, venue there, and inside the opening, they've got a giant nativity scene that they have you know, life-size figures, and at Christmas they put real people there, and all this straw and donkeys and all this kind of thing, and, and at nighttime, about two years ago, uh, one of the lights above mis- malfunctioned and dropped into the straw and set the place on fire. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a big blaze, and they had to renovate the whole place as a result, and I don't know why I'm telling you this, but that's what happened. <laughs> it was just a very, they just do a huge thing with Christmas, I guess that's my point. Well, Christmas celebrations are so common for us as Christians, and even, uh, I think, for unbelievers in uh, Western nations, that we often overlook the fact that there are many people uh, in the world today, and many nations, and their response 
to Jesus. Their response to the announcement that he is God's son in the flesh is the complete opposite of our own. Well, the story that we have just read uh, reminds us of this fact, that there have always been people who have seen the coming of God's son into the world as a threat. They've calculated the ramifications, if he really is the Lord of all. And in the first century, some of those people gambled everything on their attempt to connive and lie and, if necessary, murder this child in order to send him right back out of the world. Two millennia later, in the 21st century, people have still attempted to keep him out of their lives, and they've done all that they can to keep him out of their homes and out of their families and out of their nations and certainly prevent him from having anything to do with their daily affairs. Now, God, of course, has purposes that he has been working out from eternity past, and they are centered in this person and his work on earth. And as we've just read, he takes the necessary measures to ensure that his predetermined plan will come to pass according to his perfect timing and without any hindrance whatsoever. These verses explain how Jesus, who was predicted to be born in Bethlehem as the Messiah, actually ended up living in Egypt for a time in his infancy. And you remember later on, uh, he ends up in uh, connection with Nazareth and also with a little place called Rama, uh, because Matthew 2, you recall, is giving us the geographical origins of the Messiah. It's giving us a bit of a road map as to where he goes in his infancy. But what we read this morning is an ancient prediction that has to do with God keeping him safe. In other words, uh, what we have here is God sending his son away for a short time when he was threatened. God was keeping him safe and preserving him and then bringing him back into the land of Israel. Now, the prediction of that in verse 15, coming from the book of Hosea, uh, doesn't really appear to be messianic. When you read Hosea 11.1, it really doesn't initially appear to have anything to do at all with these events. So that's what I want to explore this morning. And as we do so, uh, we're going to consider this theme then of the Messiah's safekeeping under threat. That's kind of where we're going this morning, and I know it doesn't sound very applicational uh, in the moment, but uh, I just want to take really what we have recorded here. Uh, we're going to make some applications along the way. Uh, we're just going to take it at face value, and this is all about threats to the Messiah and the plan of God in keeping him safe. All right? Now, I want to begin this morning with the man who saw this small baby as a hindrance to his own ambitions. I want to begin with Herod. He is the threatener, first of all. That's our first point. Now, the benefit in looking at this man a little bit closer is found in the fact that when the Bible records something about an ancient character, it always does so because that person is not unique. Now, there may be certain features that are unique to his life, but he or she is actually uh, representative of the whole class of people. Now, in this case, Herod represents the category of people who are willing to give lip service to religion, especially at a season like Christmas. Uh, they might get caught up in the warm sentimentality of what's happening at Christmas or at Easter perhaps, but underneath that, they are the type of person who sees Jesus and his claims as their greatest threat. And I think you'll see that as we go along. This man is called Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the Great. He's the Great One, all right, by historians. And I want to cover three facts about his greatness that I think will show us the sense in which he is representative of some people. All right, so let's begin with his accomplishments or the things by which he made his mark on history. Herod was a great builder. 
the greatest since the days of Solomon over nine centuries earlier. So this is 2023. Calculate back for 900 years and think of someone arriving on the scene of human history today who finally does something that comes close to what was done by only one other person in the 12th century. Someone like a William the Conqueror. Uh, someone like a Genghis Khan. All right? That's Herod the Great. He's a very capable, very ambitious man. He was known for his famous building projects. Uh, he constructed a spectacular palace for himself uh, right near Jerusalem. He built fortresses all over the country, uh, some of which can still be visited today. One of them was named after him. It's called the Herodian. And ironically, it sits across a small valley from Bethlehem. And it was under construction at the very time Jesus was born. Uh, you can visit the Herodian today. It's actually Herod's burial place. It was his pleasure palace and then became his burial place. And this is where he would retreat to escape city life. It was his little getaway. And uh, from there, you can look right across and see Bethlehem. In fact, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, being a carpenter or a tradie of some kind, many think he was actually a stonemason, was no doubt at this point quite poor. So many think that it's quite likely that he walked across the valley looking for employment for a short time that they were living in Bethlehem, and he might have worked on Herod's fortress, the Herodian. And then, of course, he built Masada, which is the most visited tourist site in all of Israel. Uh, this great fortress palace sits high on kind of a triangular plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. You've got to take a cable car to get there because it sits 430 meters above the Dead Sea. Uh, this was a last retreat in times of danger. I'm sure you all know the story of the zealots in the first century who retreated up there and held out against the Romans for so long until their enemies built this huge earthen ramp against the mountain uh, from which to attack. You can still see the ramp today. But those zealots, of course, preferred death to slavery, so every man killed his wife and children, and then they drew lots to see who would kill who, and the last man drove a sword for himself. When the Romans got over the top, there was just a pile of dead bodies, basically. And they burned the palace and everything. So Herod was known for building these types of things. But of course, his greatest building project was what? The temple, the temple in Jerusalem. This was a project that was begun in the 18th year of his reign, which is about 15 years before the events in Matthew 2. Now, you're aware, of course, that uh, Solomon's temple was leveled by the Babylonians. And when God sent his people back to the land under Zerubbabel from Babylon, they began rebuilding the temple. Uh, but it was, of course, on a much smaller scale. In fact, the Old Testament records that those who lived during the days of Solomon's temple saw these much reduced foundation stones and wept because of the loss of the previous grandeur, which could never really be recovered. But it was Herod's ambition to recover it and even to surpass what Solomon had built. Uh, he began by enlarging the whole plateau on which it was sitting. Now, that's a very difficult thing to do. He actually had to level a whole hill to the northwest of the Temple Mount. And then he built huge retaining walls that stood up out of the valleys on the south and the east. And then he backfilled those walls with tens of thousands of cubic meters of rubble until he finally had this solid base up there that was several hundred meters in every direction. I mean, I thought the retaining walls at my house took a lot of work. You know, these things are massive. I think Mike could even build those retaining walls. Yeah, huge. Okay. Well, then he built these, or he had these huge foundation stones. Uh, these things weighed hundreds of tons each. Um, you know, one of them is estimated to weigh 500 tons. It's about as big as a bus. And nobody knows how they got them into place. I mean, even modern equipment today would really struggle uh, to lift these stones. So no one knows how he got them there. 
But there they stand to this day because they're just simply immovable. And then finally, on top of that, is the structure itself. It was uh, made of white marble, and much of the front was plated in gold. Uh, It was so magnificent that Josephus wrote that when you looked up there, uh, Mount Moriah looked like a snow-capped mountain because of all the marble, you know, that was shining in the sun. It really rivaled the wonders of the ancient world. Well, by the time this miraculous infant comes to adulthood and begins his ministry, the building of the temple would have been in process for 46 years. And it's going to continue for another 30 years before it's finished. Reminds me of our building renovation. (laughs) Um, When it's finally completed, over 10,000 Jewish workers will be put out of work. Seven years later, the Romans will destroy the whole thing (laughs) when they pull down Jerusalem bit by bit. But it's a huge project. And this is what Herod is known for. Now, why do you think Herod took such interest in the temple? Well, no doubt it was partly a bone that was kind of thrown to the people who opposed him. Herod was never popular with the Jewish people because he was a half-breed. He was part Jew and part Idumean. Uh, His background was not pure blood, and people were racist back then, believe it or not. So the temple would have been somewhat of a project designed to build goodwill with his subjects because Herod was certainly not a deeply religious man. And that brings me to the second thing I want to point out about this man. He was great in the way that many similar people have been great throughout history. There's been great musicians, great Scientists, great architects, great educators, great philanthropists, these kinds of people, they make their mark on history. People talk about them for decades or centuries or millennia. And many of them have a certain degree of interest in religion. But at heart, number two, Herod was a great pagan. He was a great pagan. He was grossly hedonistic. He was materialistic. He was sensual to his very core. Uh, Those building projects included theaters, amphitheaters, and racetracks all over the country. It was Herod who introduced the the very gross pagan plays and theatrics and chariot races into Israel, all of which the Jews heavily condemned. Herod married at least ten times. He sacrificed to pagan deities. He had his coins imprinted with pagan deities and legends and He built a pleasure city uh, at Caesarea on the Mediterranean seacoast. Caesarea was the equivalent of today's Las Vegas or Monte Carlo. Uh, They call it Herod's Sin City. And when you put these two facts together, this man's capable and ambitious accomplishments with this kind of materialistic, hedonistic heart, you begin to flesh out now a type of, of many, many people. Uh, these are people who have something that is God-given. I mean, where did, where did Herod get all of his creativity and his power and all of his genius? Well, all of these things are given by birth at God, by God. Uh, God gave this to Herod in order to magnify his greatness as God. But the gifts that God gave to him were spent on himself. Even while he's living in the one nation on all the earth that had the true knowledge of the one living God. In other words, this man didn't grow up in an entirely idol-worshipping, pantheistic culture. He grew up in Israel. He rejected truth as it came to him. He gave himself to his own lusts and ambitions in his heart. He achieved much of what he craved. And in the midst of all of his grasping and building and desiring, he maintained a show of religion. He presented a public appearance of respect for God. That's what many people do today. And it's been done over and over again in the history of the world by the world's greatest people. It's been done by kings and by the very wealthy. Even today, you can you know, I point out entrepreneurs or royal family members or corporate geniuses or actors and actresses who are quite willing to donate money to 
create chairs of religious studies or build structures that have their names you know, somewhere near the front door. Uh, they underwrite the expenses of popular Christian authors. They donate land or buildings or equipments to churches or religious institutions or they, they fund religious educational buildings. But at heart, they're like Herod. They inevitably clash with God and with other people around them because just like all of us, they are fundamentally ambitious and self-seeking and grasping and pleasure-loving. I mean, we don't all have the same abilities. I mean, we don't all have the same opportunities to get everything that we would like to have to make our mark on society by donating millions of dollars to some religious or social organization, but at heart, all of us, we're self-seeking. We get in each other's way in our grasping for greatness in some way or fashion. And that brings me now to the third personal fact about this man that is part of his greatness. This great builder, this great pagan, was also what the world would call today a great survivor. He actually came into political office at the age of just 25. He was made governor of all of Galilee. Within 10 years, he had bullied and conspired and bulldozed his way to the top. He was given the title King of the Jews by the Romans. And for nearly 35 years, he held that position ruthlessly against all opposition. Uh, The history of Herod, I think, would make a great movie because it's a life that has nothing but this whole web of intrigue and bribery and assassinations and civil wars and lawsuits and tortures and just brutal oppressions. They make a great Netflix series, except they'd mess it up. <laughs> uh, but they could do that about this guy's life. For example, he felt threatened by the high priest, man by the name of Aristobulus. It was his wife's brother. So he had him drowned. And then he threw an elaborate funeral for the guy and pretended to cry. Well, then he felt that his wife was turning against him, so he killed her. Then he had his mother-in-law killed, which wasn't so bad, but just kidding. That was bad too. (laughs) Then he had two of his sons killed. Just before his death, he had his third son executed. Uh, Herod is like a Saddam Hussein. He's like a Pol Pot. Uh, He's like a Vladimir Putin. He is the consummate man of the world. He is capable, ambitious, successful, street smart, even religious when it serves his purposes. But at the end of the day, he's just a jealous tyrant. That's why he feels threatened by that baby, by the prophecy of that baby, by the visit of the wise men looking for another king of the Jews. Now, What chance does a simple workman Joseph, his young, probably teenage wife, and their infant boy, what chance do they have against an almost insane jealousy of position by one of the most powerful and ambitious men in Israel? How how can this young family possibly survive? Especially when you add what we discovered in our series in Revelation. You remember Chapter 12 recounts this, uh, the career of this fallen angelic being. And that passage reveals that he was anticipating the birth of the Messiah. He was standing there like a devouring dragon, waiting until he was born so that he could pounce and destroy him. So what possibility is there that this small, helpless, vulnerable family can stand up against this old, jealous survivor fueled by a diabolical spirit like that. Well, I want us to turn now to the safekeeping of the Messiah, to the one being threatened. The threatened. You know, people like this, with great power and ability, but with a pagan heart, people like this never take into account that they're not merely going up against simple Christian folk. One of the first century enemies said, those Christians are so simple and so guileless 
and they looked like sheep. You know, that's the same observation that pagans have made throughout history, which is their perception that Christians are so passive. They're just so easy to eliminate. Uh, But what they fail to take into account is that they're really up against Almighty God. It's God with His full knowledge of what they're doing. It's God with His power and His relentless purposes, His unstoppable events. In these chapters alone, verse 13 is the third time that God has intervened through a dream. It's the second time that He sent His angel. That's because God is always at work, not only behind the scenes, but also very visibly and miraculously. So, in the face of this threat, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, and he assigns him a location where this family, and especially this child, where they're going to be preserved. And of all places, it's in Egypt, which offered them a number of advantages. Egypt was the ancient refuge of the people of God all the way back to the time of Abraham. So in Jewish history, either all of them or some of them have found refuge at one time or another beyond their own borders in Egypt. Now it sounds like it's a long way away. It sounds like it's far away, but it's actually quite close. It's about 120 kilometers from Bethlehem. That's like going to the central coast. Uh, Although walking, of course, is a lot different from driving. Uh, But in addition to that, there was already a large Jewish refugee population living there at the time of Jesus' birth. It was estimated to be uh, a population of about a million refugees. Uh, Alexander the Great had established the city of Alexandria as a city of refuge for the Jews. And it had grown considerably since then. So it's not just going to be Joseph and Mary and this baby entering a totally foreign culture where they don't even speak the language kind of thing. Sometimes we kind of think like that. But, but no, there's going to be a whole community of Jews who will welcome them and who will care for them. Some scholars have suggested that Joseph maybe even used the gifts from the wise men to fund his journey, which lasted a few months before Herod's death and then their return to Nazareth. That's probably quite true. However, these are not God's primary considerations for sending this family to Egypt. And we know that because of what it says in verse 15. It says that all of this was done so that, here's the purpose, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, God could have done anything He pleased in order to protect the Messiah. Right? He could have sent an invading army. He could have created a bacteria so small that nobody in that day could have seen it coming. He could have called it COVID. (laughs) Uh, He could have instantly taken Herod's life, the main perpetrator, and none would be the wiser. He did that. You remember with Herod Agrippa, who was Herod the Great's grandson. While the man was still speaking, the Bible says, he was announcing himself as God. The real God struck him down with a worm and he died. Well, he could have done that with Herod the Great. But instead, what he chose to do was send the family south. And he did so not because of these other advantages, but because of what he said 700 years earlier, out of Egypt, I called my son. So I want you to turn back to that prophecy in Hosea 11 because we really need to be satisfied, I think, those of us who believe that the Bible is God's Word, we need to be satisfied in our hearts and our minds that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it is entirely appropriate. We need to know that. So Matthew 2 quotes Hosea 11.1, and we need to look at it a little more closely to find out why. Isaiah 11, if you have it open there, verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's the quote, but then it says this, 
as they, and that's probably the prophets God sent, as the prophets called them, as they called Israel, so they went from them. They, Israel, and this is in response to that, Israel sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. So you can see we have here a a summary of Israel's idolatrous ways in the centuries after God delivered her from Egypt. In other words, Hosea 11.1 is a clear reference to the exodus out of Egypt and the events that took place in 1440 BC when Moses led God's people out of this land where he had been sheltering them for the most part for four centuries until Jacob and his family grew into this great nation, probably about two million people. At that point, the Pharaoh who ruled over them heavily oppressed them. So out of Egypt, God says, I called my son. But following that, you've got this idolatry in spite of the fact that God sent prophets to warn them. So with that in mind, Matthew's use of this passage does need some explanation. Because Hosea doesn't appear to mention the Messiah at all. So I want to explore this by offering you three considerations from Hosea. Three considerations. Uh, And first of all, I want to make, uh, make note of this that it's apparent that Hosea uses the word son here for the nation Israel. That's the first consideration. Let's think about that for a moment. Uh, He could have used many other terms, right? He, He could have used sons in the plural. He could have used children. He could have used nation or people. He could have used the term servants. In fact, within the context of Hosea, the most appropriate term for Israel would actually be the term wife. You remember that Hosea was a type of God himself because God directed him to marry an immoral woman, Gomer, so that he and his marriage to this woman would be a picture of God and his relationship to the immoral, idolatrous nation of Israel. Hosea's unfailing love for Gomer was meant to show Israel that in spite of their unfaithfulness, God was committed to his original covenant with them and he would not finally cast them out. Now, he would chastise them. Uh, He would deal severely with them, but only in order to bring them back to him. Right. So the most appropriate term for Israel in the context of the book is actually the term wife. So out of Egypt, I called my wife. That would be natural. But instead, Hosea uses the term son. Now, I've given you all of the other options so I can make this point. That is actually very unusual. Uh, In fact, there's only one other time before this when the term son is used of the nation in relationship to God. And of all places, it's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 4. In verses 22 and 23, Moses goes before Pharaoh with a message from God. He says, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. That's the last time that the term son in the singular is used for the nation. And it's one of the reasons why it's safe to assume that Hosea 11.1, that out of Egypt I called my son, is in fact a reference back to the events of the Exodus. Because that's precisely what God directed Moses to say to Pharaoh. Israel is my son. Let my son go. Okay, hundreds of years later, out of Egypt I called my son. You can see the connection between those two passages. That's consideration number one. Consideration number two. The Old Testament also uses the term son for who? Obviously, it's used for the second person of the Godhead in relationship to the first person. Now, it's naturally difficult for any Jew to accept that there's more than one person in the Godhead. This is also, by the way, what a modalist believes. If you come across a modalist, they say that there is one God who has manifested himself in different modes at different periods of time. So sometimes 
uh, you know, God is a father. And sometimes that same person uh, manifests as a son or a spirit. But it's really one person manifesting in different modes at any one time. Uh, now, of course, it doesn't make any sense when you consider a passage like John 17, when Jesus prays a lengthy prayer to the Father. If Jesus is one person, then who's he praying to in that passage? Um, and how do you account for the fact that in the Old Testament, God the Father actually refers to another person of the Godhead and calls that person his son? So let me just quickly give you four references in the Old Testament that acknowledge a person in the Godhead called the Son in relationship to the first person in the Godhead. Four passages, one of which we're going to look at uh, more closely in a moment. In Proverbs 34, 30 verse 4, uh, here's a question that God poses. He asks, who has ascended in a heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? These are rhetorical questions. Uh, you know, and just picture that for a moment, right? Ga- gathering the wind in your fist. Who does that? Who, who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Look at the next question. What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know. And the ESV translates that. Surely you know. In other words, this is, a, this is an easy quiz question. Surely you know this. There's one reference. Isaiah 9, 6 is the next one. We all know this one. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he is the mighty God. Psalm 2, 7 is the next passage. And this is the psalm that we looked at many times in the past from our study in Revelation. Because you remember that it opens with a stanza that traces the historical reaction of the nations to God and His Messiah. What are the nations doing? Nations are raging. You remember, they're plotting this vain concept. We're going to cast off God's cords altogether, right? But then the second stanza is the response of the enthroned God. He laughs at them. And he says this, I have installed my king on my holy hill of Zion, and then the king speaks up. I will declare my decree. The Lord, that's the first person of the Godhead, Jehovah, has said to me, the king, you are my what? My son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. I think it's quite interesting that here you have a context Uh, in which the term son is used for the second person of the Godhead because Herod is really an embodiment of the kings in the first stanza in that psalm, right? That's when the kings of the earth are setting themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah. Well, in that context of addressing those kings like Herod who would like to do away with the second person of the Godhead, the Lord replies and says, well, I have a king and it's, it's my son. It's the fourth reference I really want to look at a little bit more, and then we'll come back to Hosea 11. We'll circle back. It's in 2 Samuel 7, and the reason I want you to turn there is because there is a similarity between this passage and Hosea 11.1 that's not true of the other three references. I'll show that to you. This is the situation in which God is giving to David a covenant that is going to play out in the events of the tribulation and the coming millennium. God says to this man, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you're dead, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you would think this is a clear reference to Solomon, right? got to be. But keep on reading. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now, obviously, there are parts of this prophecy that must refer to someone other than the Messiah, right? 
For example, if he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with a rod. Well, that can't refer to the Messiah because the Messiah is sinless. We know that. But what's really remarkable is that the line in verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That is a messianic reference. In fact, the word son there should actually be capitalized. You say, how do you know that? You know, you're just making that up? Well, the general flow of the prophecy, yes, does reference Solomon, but we know it refers to the Messiah as well because it's quoted in Hebrews 1.5. It's quoted of Jesus Christ. So very clearly it's messianic. This is one of the seven quotations in Hebrews 1 where you remember that the Son, Jesus Christ, is contrasted with angels. And it says there, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he's quoting this passage, 2 Samuel 7.14, as referring to Jesus Christ. Now, here's why I'm calling this to your attention. If Hosea 11.1 does not initially appear to be messianic to you, keep in mind that it's not unique in that way, because there are a number of times when New Testament writers take Old Testament passages, and in their first reading, they seem to refer to something in, Israel, in Israel's history in the past, and yet the Holy Spirit uses those very passages to point to something in the life and work of the Messiah. It's done frequently. And here's another example in 2 Samuel, which is referenced in Hebrews and has to do with the Messiah being God's son. Are you with me? Okay. Now that brings me to the third consideration. And here's where we're going to tie it all together. The first one is that the son in Hosea 11 clearly is referring to Israel coming out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. That's obvious. The second consideration is that the word son is also used in the Old Testament for the second person of the Godhead in a relationship to the first person. But the real question is this. How can Matthew quote Hosea 11.1 and use it as a reference at all to the Messiah? I mean, I, you know, I can see how God calls Israel his son. I can see how God calls the Messiah his son in the Old Testament. But how do those two things connect in Hosea 11.1? That's the question. Well, the answer to that is in what we call, now stay with me, please. Don't turn off at this point. It's in what we call typology. All right? A type, and I'll make this simple. A type is, very simply, it's a visual prophecy. It's not a verbal prophecy. It's a visual prophecy. Uh, For example, I'm sure you know that in the Old Testament era, God used certain people as a visual illustration of the Messiah to come. Adam is a type of the Messiah. Isaac is a type of the Messiah. And then God used certain structures and rituals as picture prophecies, like the tabernacle, the temple, where religious rituals were a picture. They were a type of the Son to come and what He was going to do. Think of uh, think of Moses in the serp- uh, lifting up the serpent in the wilderness on a bronze pole. These are picture prophecies that all are pointing towards the Messiah who is coming in the future for them. In the same way, God used events. He used the Passover. The Passover was a type. It was a visual prediction of the work of the Messiah to come. It was telling these people, hey, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Here's a picture, here's a visual Keep this in mind. Keep it before you. That's what God was doing for them. Well, in Matthew 2.15, we have an event that you would never suspect was a type, and yet it was. It was when God called His Son Israel, whom He calls His firstborn, when God called His Son out of Egypt. That event in Exodus was a type. Well, if a type is a picture prophecy of something to come, When was that type fulfilled? Well, the Holy Spirit, who breathed out Hosea 11.1, breathes out Matthew 2.15, 700 years later, and says, there it is. 
Now it's fulfilled. Now the typology is fulfilled when the Messiah, God's Son, comes up out of Egypt. That's the connection. In other words, the Exodus event was literal. Hosea 11.1 is pointing back to that literal event. But because God ordained that it should also be a type or a picture prophecy pointing forward, it needs to be fulfilled. And in Matthew 2, the typology is finally fulfilled. It happened at the death of Herod when the family came up out of Egypt, bringing the Messiah with them. At that point, out of Egypt, I called my son. And you can see how Israel in Egypt represents the Messiah in Egypt and the events taking place nearly 1,500 years apart actually match one another. Just like a literal face matches the imprint on a coin. The face, as it were, is stamped. It's, it's typed on the coin, right? So that now the coin is a type of the real thing. I mean, look at the coin. You get, you get a little bit of a picture of what the queen looks like or the king. I haven't seen any king coins yet, but sure they're coming. Uh, that's how the queen looks in reality. All right, look at Israel coming out of Egypt, that event ordained by God, planned from eternity past. It's like a coin, imprinted with the reality of an event to come in the life of the Messiah. Look at the coin. Now look at them coming out of Egypt. There's the fulfillment. You really have a clear parallel in both cases, right? You have a cruel king, Pharaoh, in the Exodus, trying to destroy God's son, Israel. God's hid him. Israel's my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he can serve me. 1,500 years later, here's a parallel. You've got another cruel king, Herod trying to destroy God's Son. In both cases, you've God's miraculous protection of His Son by bringing Him up finally out of Egypt. You know, we are living in a very troubled world. And the trouble is increasing exponentially. I was flying to the USA, uh, I forget when now, August, August, something like that, and on the flight, one of the stewardesses was actually a steward, tall, black, muscular man dressed fully as a woman, in the open, in a trusted position hired by a reputable company. It really took me by surprise. I really, I, I didn't want to stare, but I was staring, and I struggled in my spirit about accepting this troubled man's service on board and the way he was acting and treating customers. I I really prayed for him because I was trying to remember that somewhere in his past, he had to deal with feelings that were not properly dealt with, not properly understood. And now he's struggling with his identity. And he's embracing the lie of the devil that this is natural, this is acceptable. This This should be celebrated today. When I was in Queensland recently, I was speaking with a pastor of a church that had membership in a once-growing denomination. He said to me, he said, Mike, I, I had to leave them because they're having discussions about changing their position on gay marriage. He said the proposal was to allow people living in, in open sin, what the Bible calls sin, in an open lifestyle, allowing them to become worship leaders, children's ministers, and really any church position except senior pastor. That was their concession. Now that is an ever-increasing indication that our world is in trouble. I mean, if you have any awareness at all of what's taking place in other countries, you know, you've got the, uh, you know, those huge riots they had in France and the war in Ukraine and these oppressive governments of communism and dictatorships. If you read any news, you know that the world is in grave trouble and there is an increasing hostility towards Jesus Christ and his people. Now, of course, we know from the Bible what's coming for the true church of Jesus Christ. Unless we, unless we bend to the demands of the world like that denomination was doing, I promise you, mark my words, there is a long and cruel persecution coming. And when it does, it's going to be passages like this. Matthew 2, 
13 to 15, and the understanding of how God has always overcome these threats with ease and in fulfillment of His words. Fulfilling verbal and visual predictions that are centuries old. There will be an understanding of passages like this in that day that will bring great comfort to Christians who are huddling in some underground hole from all the persecution going on. Jehovah says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying way back there, my counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. This God cannot be overcome by human opposition. No matter how capable no matter how highly it's placed in office, no matter how energized by the devil, God's kingdom will come and God, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But keep in mind that Jesus Christ really is a great threat to people like Herod. And it might help you if you think of it in this way. If somebody forcibly entered your home and attempted to take all of your goods, And then they try to take your wife and your children and they threatened your life if you opposed him. If that happened to you, would you be defensive and try to stop them? Of course you would. We all would. That's exactly what Jesus Christ wants to do. He wants to enter our homes and take everything and everyone And some people figure that out pretty quickly, and so he becomes their greatest possible threat. In fact, they are willing to gamble everything, as Herod does, in order to defend themselves against his claims. But you know what? It has never been done. It can never be accomplished. They will only bring themselves to ruin if they try. Because the best option is simply to surrender. And if Jesus Christ has his way, he will get your spouse. He will get every one of your children. He will claim all that you have as his own. Because he claims to be and is indeed the Lord of how much? All. But please remember that he comes in loving kindness. His getting is their saving. And your surrendering to Him will be your eternal life. It is your opposing Him that will be the greatest tragedy in your existence. Because for all eternity, you will be lost. So if you do not know Him, if you are a Christian who is fighting Him, give up your rebellion and come to Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for when we 